Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted with a leading expert on role-playing games, heard from the striking teachers in Los Angeles, and discussed tech with the White House. All this plus size matters in the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for January 25th, 2019. Mario Smith spoke to Dorothy Brown, who was a candidate for mayor until being ejected from the ballot by the Chicago Elections Board. Brown spoke about the hardball politics and the signature system and what she would have done had she been able to stay on the ballot. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2. Joining us on the phone right now is uh, Cook County Circuit Court Clerk Dorothy Brown. Hi, Ms. Brown. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's good to hear your voice. Um, I, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. I really do appreciate that. Um, You were in the mayoral race up until a couple of days ago. Um, First of all, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Okay. You're good. I mean, all things considered, all things considered, you're good. All right, good. So let's let's get down to the... uh, to what would be the brass tacks of what happened. Um, there were contested signatures a contest, or for your attempt to get on the ballot, um, and they were driven fiercely by Tony Preckwinkle. Looking back after all of that has happened, what is your feeling about the process, and do you still feel like those 1,100 signatures, that there was some validity to any of them? process is extremely flawed, just extremely flawed, uh, to have amateurs as hearing officers, uh, many of which were hired during the process, during the time period because they had so many candidates that filed. Uh, they were hired, given a one, I don't know how long, they say one day, training by a so-called handwriting expert as to how to delineate um, signatures of someone that the last time they signed a signature card, a voter registration card, might have been 20, 30 years ago. Um, And for them to be able to make decisions. And then those same individuals were, you know, know, were being influenced and, and by the objectors, you know, people trying to get them to be, you know, being friendly with them and trying to get them to rule in their favor. It's just such a flawed process. It's amazing what you, um, what, how that whole thing occurs when it comes to having a voters to make a decision on who will be their mayor or their alderman or whoever, whoever that. Uh, whatever the office is, uh, you know, so that whole objection process needs to be revised. Maybe even the petition submission process needs to be uh, revised. If they are going to have to go with, let's say, handwriting experts, and it's not a lot of those, we'll probably need to try to increase the training of, of individuals and then move the dates back so that you're not right right down to the wire on when the ballots should be printed. Mm-hmm. You know, move the dates back for submission so you have adequate time to do those reviews. And uh, and my opinion is if 
a person is um, registered to vote at that address, and they actually printed their name, and then maybe the signature, you know, may not look exact. You see, people were trained differently. Some people, some of the hearing officers wanted every and everything to match exactly. You know, any curve or crook or letter, they wanted to match exactly. And you know, a lot of people change their signatures because of identity theft. And um, and so, some people wanted to match exactly. Some people didn't. So that means how are they being trained there? So we had about 2,400 signatures whereby uh, they ruled the signature not genuine, even though the person had printed their name and their their, their address. And 2,400 people are not going to be trying to fraudulently deceive someone. So of that so-called 1173, and those numbers were suspect as well, of those 1173, we had 2,400 that should have been ruled as valid, uh, in my opinion. But that being said, the other side of that coin is that Cook County controls the city of Chicago Board of Election Petition Challenge System. They have access to each other's systems. They did not restrict access to Cook County, uh, even though the Cook County Board President who the Information Systems Department reports directly to became a candidate for mayor. Uh, so therefore, in my questioning of them, they indicated that Cook County can make any changes. They can make changes to Cook County's petition challenge data, and Cook County can make changes to theirs. So I can't even be comfortable that the those signatures that were overruled or those signatures that were sustained. So, um, so let me, let me they were even accurate. Let me ask you this then. Why didn't you challenge the challenge, if you will, instead of them immediately saying that you were off the ballot? Why didn't you challenge them on that premise alone about not being sure if those signatures were legit or not? We did. We did the motion several times. We did it to the hearing officer who, um, who denied our motion. Uh, we, you know, then uh, we did several, a couple of motions to the hearing officer who you know, they just are tunnel vision, just, you know, <laughs> not really listening to anything, any kind of out-of-box explanations, if you will. And then on the day the Board of Election itself made its decision, we brought our arguments to them, too, and they just, uh, they just uh, dismissed those arguments. So it's really, um, and I could have gone to the circuit court, but I just decided at this point, it's probably an issue that I would be better off working with the voter democracy group and ballot access people who are looking at suing in federal court to get the whole process changed. Just from the standpoint of disenfranchising the voters, the voting rights of, of individuals. We're talking with Dorothy Brown, Cook County Circuit Court, court Clerk. That's a mouthful. Um, I want to ask you a question that is not election related, and, and then we're going to introduce Michaela Blaze to come into the conversation. The Laquan McDonald, Jason Van Dyke, not Laquan McDonald, the Jason Van Dyke verdict uh, last week, um, woefully underrepresented what the people wanted or what was expected from the system. 
Um, what is your position on what happened, the verdict being laid down, and the reaction to it? And in your role of Cook County Circuit Court clerk, what is it that you may be able to do to prevent something like that from happening again, where someone is under-sentenced, if, if you will? for me we watched yesterday as it was revealed by the chicago sun times that alderman solis has been wearing a wire for a couple of years now <laughs> and and in deference to alderman burke um this is something that's going to probably come across your desk sooner or later um and, and i realize that there are probably things you can or cannot say but what i'm looking for from you on this one is how much of an effect do you think going back to the mayoral race, that Alderman Burke and subsequently now Alderman Solis will have on this election with roughly a month to go? I think he's going to have a huge effect on this election. Uh, it's already showing the numbers related to Tony Preplinkle, who, you know, uh, was the person that uh, 
you know, obviously um, went against me and challenged me. And when she did not have to do that, she could have very well withdrawn that challenge and permitted the voters to decide. Um, I think her so-called progressive uh, stance and, and, and persona, persona that she's attempted to sell to the people, I think there's been a chip in that so-called armor. People are finally recognizing that she basically is a front machine. As a matter of fact, she is a machine now that she's taken over the chairmanship of the Democratic Party. And um, so it's affecting her numbers uh, hugely. And then, of course, you know, there's a possibility that it will affect Carrie Chico and Susanna Mendoza as well. Because people are really tired of this machine politics. Uh, this, this, this machine politics has has its foot on the throat of people in the city of Chicago for far too long, and it's hindered um, the progress from our educational system. Uh, it's hindered the progress from as far as the proper and equitable economic development throughout the city of Chicago, and it's caused, created the atmosphere for preventing crime to run rampant in the city of Chicago. And people are tired of it. Everybody is tired of it. You know, everybody I talk to, you guys that raised me of color, really have the same opinion about what's going on with Tony Perkwinkle. They just feel that, you know, the jig is up. John Daly and Jamie Trecker chatted with Will Hindmark about the social significance of role-playing games. How did Dungeons & Dragons, which for years was blamed for fostering quote-unquote Satanism in teens, go mainstream? And what does gaming tell us about our society? Find out more on Radio Free Bridgeport every Tuesday, drive time. And Jamie, through the course of uh, however many years, three or 40 years we've been doing the show. 39, I think it is. Isn't we it? have talked about Level Eater often. Uh, going back to when Logan was the dungeon master in the first level eater that I played in. Roland Hayton, right? Yeah. Yep. Roland Hayton. Yep. Uh, Will, level eater was uh, just this last week, actually. Uh, it was a big success, by the way. Thank you to everybody who came out. Level Leader, uh, as most people know, supports Lumpen Radio and uh, and what we hope is the good work we do here. <laughs> you guys can be the judge of that, I guess. Um, but it was a big success. A lot of fun uh, for Level Leader 999. I can, uh, unfortunately, I believe the campaigners did not win. I believe Evil triumphed this year. Am I correct, Will? I, I wouldn't go so far as to say triumph because it was merely the harbinger of a greater danger. Um, oh. But, but. But, uh, yeah, no, they did not succeed in anything other than having a great time and doing well for their community. That's it. <laughs> well <laughs> and put. supporting local radio. And supporting local radio. Let's, let's back up a little bit. We, had, we asked Will to come in here. Will, um, you're, you're not the founder of Level Eater, I know, but you've been writing the Level Eater games for, was it four or five years now? Is that correct? Uh, this is nine, so four years, yeah. Four years, okay. Um, I want to take people through – I asked Will to come on the show because um, gaming obviously has become um, – 
very popular in modern times, a variety of games, mm-hmm. video games, role-playing games, multi, multiplayer games. And, and Will, being somebody who, who writes these things, uh, I thought was a good guide to folks like myself who don't know anything about it to kind of explain why this is a phenomenon, what it kind of says about us in our, in our society. But I did kind of want to start at the beginning because um, most people have the idea of uh, role-playing games, such as something like Dungeons & Dragons, which mm-hmm. is what Level Eater is. Um, I remember uh, when I was a kid, all I heard about was that Dungeons & Dragons was leading people to Satan. Uh, and and <laughs> I, I have not seen a critical mass of Satanists in my neighborhood as a result, but I wonder if we could just start there and talk a little bit about the origins of the games and, and how all this hysteria got started. Uh, well, let's see. So the origin of the games is uh, best broken down into there's a whole series of of books and essays and articles and great histories that have just recently come out including um one called playing at the world by john peterson which is a book i can recommend but is uh and that's a big book because there's a lot of history the short version is that DD has a kind of misty mysterious origin that comes out of wargaming and tabletop miniatures and things like that when people decided i want to play the same character from from scenario to scenario and kind of naturally led into both the role-playing and some of the natural story kind of emergence that happens from that once you have a character that, that recurs. Uh, it, there were games that weren't remotely dice-driven. You know, when you think of D&D, we think of the, 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 the 20-sided die and the weird-shaped dice and stuff and rolling dice with uh, 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 surrounded by sodas and stuff like you see on Stranger Things and everything. Um, but uh, uh, some of its origins are in that, and some of its origins are in very world-building, very... Uh, communal story-driven gaming. Uh, and they came out of things like Lake Geneva in Wisconsin, uh, so they're very much sort of of the area. Uh, hmm. TSR, the company that founded uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and, and uh, founded Gen Con, one of the big gaming conventions in the world right now, which is currently held in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, every summer. Uh, TSR was based in Lake Geneva and uh, was there until D&D moved to Wizards of the Coast in Seattle, uh, okay. which would have been around oh. the turn of the century. So, uh, uh, and there's a lot of this that, that is uh, recently being rehashed and, and re-explored and, and it's all an oral history at this point because there's a lot of, I don't want to say necessarily differing accounts as much as there are a lot of, we're, we're just starting to lose essentially the first generation of gamers in this in this hobby where okay. Gygax has passed away. Gary Gygax, the, the founder of TSR, right? Right, yeah, and the, the, one of the credited creators of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Um, and so we're in this interesting kind of handoff period where not only are we moving from what are in some ways first or second generation gamers introducing and guiding the next generation of gamers, but those gamers, in some cases, uh, uh, inventing new games from nothing, doing exactly what they did in 1977 and 1976 and thereabouts with D&D and inventing games from almost just their raw imaginations, not realizing until they get online and try playing their games with, with other people that these that they are recreating D&D or they are recreating story games. They're actually like lots of sort of independent uh, uh, inventions and imaginations of gaming over the years. Uh, people who, who in isolation don't realize that they're reinventing something like D&D. And that has been, by and large, I think, a, a great injection, a great healthy injection of creativity and ingenuity into the hobby, where that rather than being a single continuity, uh, there's a lot of great... Uh, uh, a resurgence of sort of energy and expansion of it and everything. And so sometimes that leads to issues as to who, what is and is not truly an RPG, what is and is not truly a board game, when does a card game become a toy instead of a game, and all this other stuff. And, and because gamers love to, we're, we're all number-driven or, or, or nuance-driven or, I don't want to say, we're not necessarily all uh, uh, into the pedantry of it, but we all get 
games often reward the 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 differentiation between well no but I only moved six feet instead of five feet my my little figure only moved so many inches uh, that we're also part of a nerd culture that is about particulars and so we have these vast and deep arguments over things that don't necessarily matter that much but with that comes uh, a level of passion and pathos that drives into the hobby a uh, I don't know I would say I mean it's it, it can be used for negative but it's also a great positive resurgence of energy that the, it's always churning and it's always reinventing itself and even when people graduate artists graduate from gaming into TV or into comic books or what have you um, there's all, there's this fond recollection of gaming that that a lot of people carry forward so gaming has become sort of a training ground in some ways so the history of gaming cuts across lots of American and, and, and international culture in these ways and it cuts into different creative enterprises and the people who grew up playing D&D in the 80s are making movies now and uh, uh, the generation of kids who wish they could play with their older brothers in the 80s and couldn't are making movies now and all that stuff is uh, leading to we're just now I think starting to really see not the intentional influence of D&D into the hobby that happened or into things like movies and TV and, and fiction that happened decades ago but this sort of instinctive, I learned to tell stories by playing D&D level of, of uh, uh, young person is able to bring that to movies and film and comics and such. Were there, I'm sorry, were there story games before Dungeons and Dragons? Strictly speaking, so this is an area where I'm going to, my opinion is going to differ, I think, from some of the some of the, the history books. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Uh, the short version being that Cowboys is, and or, uh, robbers or, or, or cops and Indians or whatever the various games that kids would play on the, 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 the playground in the 40s and 50s were story games in a lot of ways if they were like, well, I'm playing the same character I was playing yesterday. I see. Okay. And that's if it would carry forward. But also uh, Dave Arneson, one of the other credited creators of, of Dungeons and Dragons, had a series of games and campaigns that were very, very light on rules. They weren't really system driven, but were about exploring and inventing a world session by session by session that some of it would be invented by him and revealed to the players and then it would respond to the decisions that the players made. And so that sort of channel of, in, of influence into the hobby is not directly descended or not inherently or essentially descended from the, the wargaming, but they, where they met, where they collided was sort of the Big Bang. So, I, I was just going to say, you know, we, Jamie, you had talked about the association or what we had heard in the news about this being associated with, uh, and I kind of forgot about that, that D&D was some kind of satanic... Uh, the satanic panic. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and I remember that as a kid. Um, oh, yeah. It makes sense that 77 is kind of the inception, because um, I was born in 80, so by the time I was in grade school, I remember that kind of being... But I also remember the first time I ever played, it was at a park district, and my cousin Patrick, who had also grown up in the neighborhood here... Um, brought me and I had, it was absolutely too young to be playing and understand the rules and it was all with adults it was an incredibly intimidating uh, experience sure. but also rewarding I mean it was a lot of fun and you know you got to start somewhere so right on yeah I mean I think that that differentiation between whether or not you're playing all the rules of D&D and you're using all of the numbers and all of that stuff um, there's an era in which what whether or not it's accurate but there was a perceived notion that you're that like you can see in the movie E.T where Elliot wants to play with his older sibling um, and they're like, well, you don't really get all the rules, you're not very good at it, whatever. Uh, and he just clearly wants to run around an imaginary world with people um, and have a good time. And that's also D&D and that's also RPGs and story games. Uh, I was similarly, my parents would not like me 
telling this anecdote, but I was forbidden to play D&D because they had heard about the Satanic Panic, and that lasted about 48 hours. <laughs> and then I played it at a, I played it at a friend's uh, birthday party right before my birthday, right on the eve of I think it would have been my first year of junior high, and it was a, a sleepover. And one of, unbeknownst to me, one of the other kids at the sleepover was a kid who was a bully of mine. And we were fast friends once we started fighting minotaurs and killing giant scorpions together. <laughs> we suddenly realized that that well, we have a lot more in common when we are playing imaginary sword and sorcery characters than we do in school. And when we went back to school, I was just assumed in my way that he was going to go back to being a bully, and he wasn't because we had this shared experience. And we weren't using a ton of the rules or anything like that, and and the, the level of gameplay involved can be very, very light. There's a lot of mileage to be had in just shared imagination and the shared imagination experience, um, inventing that stuff together. And that's why whether you call them RPGs or story games and some things are very clearly one versus the other and some have a foot in each world and people argue all the time over what is the limit of what genre of game. But by having that broad diversity of games uh, available both then and now, and it's only more so now, I think uh, enables gamers to play with other kinds of gamers in a way that we didn't used to have so that especially for the individual event, like we have people at Love Leader who I think this is the one time they play a year or we had somebody I know this year who had never really played before and wasn't sure quite what they were getting into and had a great time and their DM I know, their dungeon master, the one who facilitates the game was very moved by their, how quickly they embraced the experience and the imagination of it all. And so that positive experience is part of what I like about Love Leader is that it's a great way to get a diverse level of skill sets playing the game together. You, you know, you kind of remind me that because of that experience with my older cousin and, and trying to play that advanced of a game, I remember, you know, for the following Christmas, I got uh, a couple board games and one of them being Axis and Allies. Oh, right and on. at that age... Uh, you know, I tried to play with my friends, and we were, you know, risk was an advance for us at that point. Um, so, you know, we'd set it up, and we really didn't know what the, you know, what we were doing. Um, and and that proved to be too complicated. So I remember there being like a samurai game, which was probably even more involved, but had really, fa- you know, fantastic pieces. <laughs> so we really oh, enjoyed. I, I gotta, I can't think of the name Gosh, of it, but I will have. Might have been Bushido, or it might have been Shogun. They were both. It was Shogun. It was Shogun. It was Shogun. Yes, it was. Um, so yeah, so not, so that that just kind of evolved into more complicated games at that, <laughs> that time that I wouldn't understand for for many years. But but, but you know, thinking about uh, you know, you said you've been involved for four years. The one thing that I've noticed in playing is that there is a larger story arc. And has that? Uh, did you start knowing where that was going, or is this something that's uh, we're not? We last year we played in Bridge uh, Port Ports Bridge, right? Ports Bridge, right. Mm-hmm. How you know? No relation to Bridgeport. <laughs> no, um, no, no. How? Tell us about the evolution of that 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 arc. So the 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 interesting thing about this to me is that the first time that I ran for Level Leader at all, it was a sort of after the the bands and art show in the early days of of Level Leader after uh, we roll in the Hayton, but before the the game driven Level Leader events, there was some D and D played sort of after the main uh, uh, soiree, as it were. And so I ran a, uh, an adventure for that because I wanted it to be more of an actual play and D&D component in the event. Uh, and because I'd really admired Love Leader as it was and because I'm a big D&D nerd. And so I, was, I wanted to have that element. Uh, but when it came time for me to actually, when somebody tagged me and said, great, so you can devise something for six tables to play next year. Um, 
there wasn't a ports bridge in that, but I sort of retroactively made that the same. This, that that adventure happened in the same setting as all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as I tell the the dungeon masters and all the players and everything that I can in the lore documents that go out, which are sometimes two pages, sometimes ten pages, it depends on how much information I backstory I think is important for people to know. Uh, ports bridge is inspired by Bridgeport, but is not an allegory. It is very much more a D and D setting in which some of the proper nouns are easy for people who don't play very often to remember. People can re- remember Ports Bridge, but they may or may not remember Haven's Rest or a Venethal or whatever other pharmaceutical sounding name is going to be a made up <laughs> fantasy word. Um, so Ports Bridge is just memorable, and otherwise, it, other than the fact that the map is a fun sort of correlation to to Bridgeport, which again is a, a logistical thing. It lets players get a sense of how far things are apart. Right. Um, it also lets Logan draw demons coming out of my house <laughs> as he did last year, which yes. I, I appreciated very much. And Logan draws his maps are phenomenal for, yes, for both Ports Bridge and Under Ports Bridge. He's done now. Um, <laughs> under Ports Bridge. We have, that's what we call it, the map we have for the yes. underground. Yes. Um, but the, the I do almost no pre-planning. This is the first time that I've done anything uh, this year from 9 to 10 because I didn't assume in previous years that what I did was going to work well enough to be the same thing next year or that people were going to like it enough to be the same thing the following year. So I've yeah. been changing up the, uh, the, the style of play a little bit um, to get it so that there is a meta game, as we call it, a game that is so that all the tables are playing together but not messing with each other. Yeah. Um, and so they're interacting in a positive way. This week on The Trump Diaries, the shutdown grinds on, Pelosi yanks the State of the Union address, Giuliani drops more Coleman balls about Russia, did Trump tell Michael Cohen to lie to Congress? And Trump photoshops his hands. Really, these are The Trump Diaries. Day 728, January 17th. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani made a remarkable claim that, quote, he never said there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. In a baffling turn on CNN, Giuliani said that he had only said that Trump himself had not colluded. Quote, there is not a single bit of evidence the President of the United States committed the only crime you can commit here, conspired with the Russians to hack the DNC. Giuliani later tried to walk back those comments, but his implication there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia became major news. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi disinvited Trump from the State of the Union address, telling him to just submit it in writing as the government remains partially closed. Pelosi cited security concerns and the Secret Service. The move stunned the White House, which had no immediate response. ICE has claimed responsibility for an attack that killed four Americans in Syria. The attack came just weeks after Trump moved to withdraw troops suddenly from that country, claiming that ISIS had been defeated. GOP critics immediately attacked Trump's tweet, saying they had emboldened ISIS. The General Services Administration Inspector General said the agency ignored concerns that Trump was violating the Constitution's Emoluments Clause. The GSA allowed Trump to keep a lease of a government-owned building, which is the old post office for the Trump Hotel. In a related story, nine T-Mobile executives booked rooms at Trump's hotels one day after the company announced a merger that required Trump's approval. T-Mobile executives repeatedly returned to Trump's hotel since. That merger valued at $26 billion and a deal with Sprint with more than double T-Mobile's value and market share. Vice President Mike Pence's wife, Karen, began teaching art at a school that discriminates against LGBTQ kids by refusing admission to gay students. Staff and students also must sign a pledge not to engage in homosexual activity or violate, quote, the unique roles of male and female. Pence was roundly criticized, leading the VP to call the response, quote, deeply offensive. He then claimed critics were attacking Christian education. 
A Russian woman who claimed to have 16 hours of audio recordings linking Russia to Trump's election has been deported and arrested in Russia. Anastasia Vakovich pled guilty to charges of solicitation and conspiracy in Thailand. She had requested asylum in the USA in exchange for her recordings. No evidence of these recordings has ever materialized. Senate Republicans blocked a Democratic effort to enforce sanctions against Russian companies controlled by a key Putin ally. The vote fell three votes shy of the 60-vote threshold. Sanctions on the companies tied to Oleg Deripaska will be now lifted. And the Trump administration separated thousands more migrant children from their parents at the U.S. border than previously known. At least 3,000 children were separated forcibly. A new report says that, in fact, many times that are being warehoused and that the Homeland Security Service and Border Patrol do not know the full total of children in their care. Day 729, January 18th. In a bombshell report, BuzzFeed said that Trump personally directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about his plans to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Cohen was ordered to, quote, minimize links between the Moscow project and Trump, quote, in hopes of limiting the ongoing Russia investigations. Those are Cohen's words. The revelations of suborning perjury would be a federal crime if proven. However, BuzzFeed's report drew a rare response from the special counsel's office, which said the piece was inaccurate without being specific about what was wrong. BuzzFeed said it stood behind the story and the sourcing and called upon Mueller's office to clarify its remarks. Democrats and Republicans immediately noted if the report is true, it would be grounds for impeachment. Cohen is to testify to Congress on February 2nd. Trump abruptly postponed Nancy Pelosi's trip to Afghanistan in relation for the State of the Union disinvitation, calling her trip, quote, a public relations event in a letter laced with sarcasm. Trump has had called on Pelosi to remain in Washington during the shutdown, but suggested she could make the trips on commercial flights. Pelosi staff, however, subsequently noted they could not fly commercial as Trump had revealed her entire itinerary, making it a security risk. Even Trump's allies, such as Lindsey Graham, called Trump's move childish. Meanwhile, Melania Trump flew to Florida on an Air Force jet just hours after Trump canceled Pelosi's use of a military plane. Trump has apparently been caught off guard by the fact that his nominee for Attorney General, William Barr, is a close personal friend of Robert Mueller. Barr and Mueller have been close for nearly 30 years, a fact that apparently Trump's team did not unearth in their screening. Trump has loudly complained about this fact to his staff in recent days. Meanwhile, the wife of acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker sent an email to a reporter from Slate that claimed Mueller's investigation is, quote, wrapping up. Marcy Whitaker complained about the reporter's argument that Whitaker should recuse himself from the Mueller investigation. She also said the government shutdown is affecting her family's ability to earn a living. And Trump told Michael Cohen to hire a company to rig CNBC and Drudge Report online polls. Cohen hired a company called Red Finch Solutions to do just that. He also asked the company to promote him as a sex symbol. Red Finch launched a little-notice Women for Cohen Twitter account. Cohen then stiffed the contractor for $50,000. Cohen apparently gave the principal of Red Finch a blue Walmart mag containing $13,000 in cash and a boxing glove that Cohen had said been worn by a Brazilian mixed martial arts fighter. Cohen, of course, billed Trump for the full $50,000. Day 730, January 19th. Trump, claiming he was making, quote, a major announcement, shifted course and offered temporary protection for roughly 700,000 young undocumented immigrants in exchange for a $5.7 billion funding for his wall. That proposal, which would only reinstate temporary protective status for 300,000 people and reinstatement for the Dreamers, would not be permanent. It would only last three years. Trump, of course, himself revoked DACA protections in the first place. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell blocked a third attempt by House Democrats to reopen 
open the government with a clean spending bill, and Trump announced a second meeting with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. That meeting to take place in late February is aimed at restarting stalled denuclearization talks. In a related story, 20 nuclear missile sites in North Korea were recently unearthed by spy satellites. The White House canceled its trip to the World Economic Forum in Davos, quote, out of consideration for the great 800,000 workers not receiving pay. The U.S. also rejected an offer from Russia that would have preserved the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. The U.S. and its NATO allies want Russia to destroy a nuclear-capable cruise missile system. The USA, however, will now withdraw from that deal on February 2nd. Day 731, January 20th. Trump's proposal to reopen the government with limited protections for DACA recipients went over like a lead balloon. Nancy Pelosi called it, quote, not a compromise, but hostage-taking. Trump's own base started howling about amnesty for illegals. McConnell is said to be attempting to insert Trump's language into a Senate bill to try and force Democrats to vote on it. Meanwhile, Mike Pence compared Trump to Martin Luther King Jr., claiming both leaders have inspired Americans to change through the legislative process. The comment drew an incredulous response from Pence's interviewers who noted that King fought racism and was assassinated for his views, while Trump has embraced white racist and nationalists. Pence was also grilled on Trump's claims that ISIS had been defeated with the normally friendly Fox News pushing back hard. Pence was also asked by Chris Wallace why, if Trump was making a genuine attempt at ending the shutdown, why hadn't he asked any Democrats to come and consult with him? While Pence made his TV appearances, Trump tweeted, quote, No, amnesty is not part of my offer. It is a three-year extension of DACA. Amnesty will only be used in a much bigger deal, whether on immigration or something else. There will be no big push to remove the 11 million-plus people who are here illegally, but be careful, Nancy. There are not 11 million people in the United States illegally. Day 732, January 21st. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani dropped another bomb, saying Trump was personally involved in negotiations to build a Trump Tower in Moscow throughout the entire presidential campaign. Giuliani said conversations between Trump and Michael Cohen about building a Trump Tower in Moscow, quote, went on throughout 2016, probably up to, could be up to as far as October, November. Giuliani later quoted Trump that the discussions, quote, were going on from the day I announced to the day I won. Trump has repeatedly claimed he had no business in Russia during the campaign. Kamala Harris announced she is running for president in 2020. The California senator becomes the third woman to declare in a crowded Democratic field that includes Senator Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand. The fine print of Trump's deal to lift sanctions against a Russian oligarch also gave that oligarch significant financial bonuses. Trump lifted the sanctions on Oleg Deripaska over the strong objections of Congress. The deal wipes out hundreds of millions of dollars in debt while leaving Deripaska and his allies with a majority ownership of the company. Deripaska is a major figure in the Russian interference campaign. And Trump honored Dr. Martin Luther King Jr with a two-minute visit to his memorial in Washington. He laid a wreath at the base of a sculpture of Dr. King and then thanked reporters for being there. Day 733, January 22nd. Alleged lawyer Giuliani gave an interview to The New Yorker that was off the rails, even for him. In the interview, Giuliani admitted listening to taped conversations, apparently made by Michael Cohen, trying to walk back a previous statement on Trump's dealings with Russia and ended up further muddying the waters. Trump's advisors have apparently grown exasperated with Giuliani and are seeking to have him exit. Meanwhile, Trump Jr. claimed in a tweet the family, quote, didn't know anything about a Moscow tower and, quote, it was all Cohen. In fact, Trump Jr. signed a letter of intent to build the tower in 2015. Supreme Court took no action on the Trump administration's request to review the DACA program. That move means DACA will remain in place and deny Trump a bargaining chip in the continuing standoff over the government shutdown. 
The Supreme Court also allowed a mysterious foreign-owned company to file sealed court documents. That company, which is a wholly-owned state firm, is being investigated by Robert Mueller. That company has claimed in court filings that cooperating would violate its local laws. However, the court did not rule on the merits of that argument. It did, however, dramatically increase the penalties for non-compliance to $50,000 a day, indicating the court believes the company is in American legal jeopardy. The White House has ceased holding on-camera press briefings because Trump directed Sarah Huckabee Sanders not to bother. Certain members of the press cover her rudely and inaccurately. And Gizmodo noticed that Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts have been posting altered photos. The photos have been retouched to make him look thinner and his hands bigger. A number of photos also doctored his hair and made him look fitter than he really is. Day 734, January 23rd. The Supreme Court granted Trump's request to bar most transgender people from serving in the military while cases challenging that policy make their way to the court. The court was apparently swayed by an argument from Trump's solicitor that as many as 25 policy initiatives had been blocked by national injunctions at the lower level. Trump reversed the 2016 decision by the Obama administration to open the military to transgender service members. It generally prohibits transgender people from military service, but is making exceptions for those already serving openly and those willing to serve, quote, in their biological sex. The Senate is voting today on two competing bills to end the government shutdown. Neither is likely to pass. 73% of Americans believe that climate change is real and that global warming is happening. 72% also say global warming is personally important to them. 60% of Americans now disapprove of Trump, a new high as his polling continues to crater. Trump's support among Republicans and independents is also slipping. The latest polls have him at a 35% approval rating. These are the Trump Diaries. Melanie Adcock spoke to Matt Cutts, the head of the White House's Digital Service Office. Cutts discussed the challenges and promise of technology in America, what his office is doing to combat fake news, and life under Trump. Tech Scene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. We are honored to speak with the administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, Matt Cutts, and Kat Jurek, the USDS Director of Design. Their office is located at the White House in our nation's capital. They are a nonpartisan startup that works across various government agencies with the goal of solving big problems and delivering higher quality services to Americans. One of the values on their website that outlines their work is that this team works for the people, not headlines or prestige. They are willing to tackle the hard stuff, even when success isn't guaranteed. We are so glad to have you here in Chicago in the middle of winter, no less. And our, our regular guests on this show are local Chicagoans working to build Chicago's tech community through uh, community events and meetups. And on behalf of everybody in the Chicago tech industry, it is an honor to have you here in our city today. And Matt and Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We're, we're very glad that you're here with us today. And, and, and Matt, um, to, to start off here, you were the administrator of the, the U.S. Digital Service. And before that, you were working at Google and did a lot to help explain some of Google's more complex features. So I thought we could begin by having you share a, an overview of the mission of your department and, and, and what it means. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's funny because when I have five seconds with somebody, I'll say something like, the U.S. Digital Service exists to improve government services that millions of people rely on. 
Um, but the nice thing is we have like an hour to talk. And so to, to double click on that in a little more detail, um, we bring in technology best practices. So think about designers, engineers, product managers. Um, and as part of that, you get industry best practices, things that government maybe should be doing, uh, but has not done historically. And so I'm, I'm really happy we've got Kat here as well. She's mm-hmm. our director of design, so uh, knows a lot about you know user-centered design and design thinking and how to facilitate things. And we, t- we take those best practices and we basically just try to make the government work better because you will be shocked to learn that it does not always work as well as it should. Yeah, it, so- it sounds, um, sounds like your work is uh, centered and focused on that, which is an important job. Mm-hmm. Um, and your, your organization and, and department was, was started during the Obama administration. Can, can you tell us how it began and how it was founded? Absolutely. So we are most famous for healthcare.gov, which is basically when, as part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, people tried to show up and sign up for healthcare, and it turns out the website sort of fell over and caught on fire and, and shrapnel went everywhere. And it, w- it was just a really bad scene. And so uh, several geeks, uh, actually a lot of different technologists, came in and, and got the system and the site back up so that people could enroll in healthcare. And um, it was interesting because I think after that, people realized you could have a signature policy proposal, the thing that you cared about the most. But if you don't have technology people in the room to say, that's not how a computer works, then you're going to have problems. And, uh, and so the U.S. Digital Service was founded in 2014. And later this year, we'll celebrate our fifth birthday. Five years, hmm. and and now and now the organization is working with with the Trump administration. What is that like, and have there been any changes? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny because uh, if you read the headlines, you might think, oh, there's there's a whole lot of you know wacky stuff going on in Washington, and and sure, there's a lot of interesting swirling things going on, but if you go down a level or two. There is a ton of stuff happening to help make government work better. You know, if you think about it, whether you're a veteran, uh, a doctor, a student, uh, trying to run a small business, all of these people interact with the government. And every single person wants government to work well. So the thing that people don't realize is that this is completely nonpartisan on both the left and the right and, you know, up and center and, you know, purple and red and blue. Everybody wants government to work well whenever they're interacting with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, whether it's from the framing of like, hey, it does save money whenever, you know, technology can make government work better or whether it's helping make sure that, you know, the people who are interacting with government get good services. Mm -hmm. Either way, this has actually been a bright spot where everybody agrees government should work better. Great. And uh, let's see. So, well, um, that well, that was. I was really curious about that. And then, how how the U.S. Digital Service Office is is like a startup. It's kind of like a startup and different from a startup. I thought um, you might go into that. Like for example, you might be autonomous, um, like a startup, but you don't make money like a startup. Correct. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So. Um I can talk about this a little bit. The, the startups have a reputation for being very scrappy, and I would say that our organization is is like that as well. That that we are coming from a lot of different places um, and a lot of different backgrounds, and are coming together to accomplish a goal in a fairly limited amount of our time because we do what is called a tour of service model, which means that we come in for a short period of time and then often go back out into um, either private sector work or other civic tech work, which is something that we're starting to see. 
see. Um, so it's it's like a startup in that you know our furniture doesn't necessarily match, and and <laughs> we are um, often. Um, you'll walk into our living room space and see a lot of people wearing hoodies that, that look like the kinds of people that you would expect to see at a technology startup. Um, and some of the ways that it is different is just the scale of the work that we are doing and also that oftentimes startups can have the luxury, a technology startup has the luxury of being able to come in at with whatever the technology of the day is and to really start at the, with the best of the best of what's available. We're kind of working with the opposite, right? We're taking legacy systems that have been around sometimes longer than um, the, than some of us have been alive um, in oh the case of, of one of the projects that I'm thinking of um, and really trying to, to start with what's there and mm. figure out how to bring modern software development and modern design practices to that. And that's a very different kind of challenge than some of the challenges that uh, your average technology startup would face. Yeah. Well, and, and th- thank you for, for answering that. And now, how many people work in your office and, and who are they and what do they do? Uh, tell us about them. And I, I, by the way, hello, I hope they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know for a fact a few are listening to the stream right now. Um, so we historically, we're about 170 to 175 people. And um, it's interesting. We've got talent folks who help make sure that people have a good experience so it's not a typical apply to government kind of job. Uh, And then we have these sort of delivery communities of practice. So design, engineering, product management. Uh, We even have groups of folks who specialize in getting things done in government. We have historically called them bureaucracy hackers. Uh, Maybe we call them strat ops or, you know, a slightly different word now. So, you know, people don't feel like, oh, why, why, why am I being hacked? And then there's one really interesting group called, uh, well, they deal with procurement, mm. and they call themselves the Procurmanati. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, you know, it turns out how you buy things in government really matters. And mm-hmm. so having experts that are like, don't write a contract that just encourages people to bill as many hours as possible. Mm-hmm. Write the contract that incentivizes people to deliver a finished product that actually works for people. Uh, right. And and so getting that virtuous cycle where you have the right mix of, you know, designers who can say, are we really tackling the right problem? You know, and product managers who can help make sure that the right requirements get written and, you know, things are delivered on time. And then engineers who can say, mm, that's not the most efficient way to do that. And so when you get these small, highly empowered cross-functional teams, that's where we really start to see good things happening. Wow, oh, that is um, that sounds like everybody's very very busy too. Um, and now diversity has been such a hot button in the tech industry, of course. And I thought you could tell us about some of the numbers when it comes to diversity on your team. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, we very much have the attitude and the idea and the philosophy that. The U.S. digital service works best when it reflects the entire American public. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, for example, yes, we do recruit in Silicon Valley, but we've done recruiting roundtables right here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's fantastic people in Tucson and Phoenix and Nashville and, you know, Cat hails from Seattle. And mm-hmm. so, like, not just from different geographies, but all different backgrounds. And having having those sorts of representation really make us stronger. And And if you look at the... The stats, it's something like 60% of our leadership uh, are women. That is great. So, you know, government has to serve everybody. And and Mm -hmm. government is actually 
a lot better on diversity in some ways than the tech industry. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I've been really excited, and it's 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 a very um, it's a much better working environment than a lot of the kind of you know monotone you know monoculture sort of stuff that you might see in the regular tech industry. Yeah, well, good. Well, thank you. I was curious about that, and and it's, it sounds like that's uh, going very very well in your team. And no, no, what's your team's process like? Are, are you fans of of agile and and DevOps and things like that? Can you talk about that for a minute? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Oh. Um. Yeah, so we absolutely are fans of, of anything that would fall into the category of modern software development. Um, agile is a, a word that lots of people like to use, and I think, and DevOps as well. I think a lot of what we can do is help each organization or team that we're working with help define what that is going to mean for them um, in terms of how they're going to start to think about doing the work that they do in a different way that may be more reflective of modern practices. Um, So not everybody is going to do Agile the same way. And I think Mm -hmm. that you need to have um, a certain amount of wiggle room there in order to be able to help them find solutions that are going to work really well for them instead of being very prescriptive about you must do it absolutely by the book in this way. Because oftentimes those are, you'll find that it's harder for people to adopt um, and to be successful in um, meeting a criteria or definition that isn't going to, that doesn't really match the way that they um, think about the work that they're doing. Radio Free also welcomed the band Moon into Studio A for a John Daly session. This excerpt is from their new album, Extinction, and was produced by Ari Shellist with assistance from Annie Klein. Yeah. 
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Schellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.